So we've been going through Ephesians together, and our discipleship team at Youth thought it'd be great to encourage you guys with some of the scripture that is addressed to the church from this book. So be blessed and be encouraged by these words. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance and his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. You are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. We are all God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household. Hi church, I'm here to remind you that in Christ we can be bold and confident in our faith. There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father of all. God's love is not cautious, but extravagant. He didn't love to gain anything from us, but instead give everything of himself to us. So love like that. We were all once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. The best children of light. A final word. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. As we've been going, at, um, going through Ephesians together as a church, uh, at the discipleship team and youth, we've been going through Ephesians, and we've been doing a chapter by chapter each week, and it's just been uh, such a blessing to be in the Word. And for that reason, I actually want us to spend some time in Ephesians 2. We spent um, one of in that chapter, and I found it to be really encouraging. So today, we're actually going to jump back into Ephesians chapter 2 and explore it a bit more. So if you want to grab your Bibles and join me, that'd be great. Uh, today might feel more like a Bible study than a preach. So what we're going to do is, in our Bibles, we're actually going to um, structure Ephesians 2 in three ways. We're going to structure it by the past, the present, and the future. So what we're going to do is verses 1 to, th 1 to 3 are going to be structured as past. Verses 4 to 6 are going to be structured as present. And verses 7 to 10 will be structured as the future. And each of these represent um, every Christian, every believer's past, present, and future. Mm. So what we see at the start of Ephesians 2, things are pretty bleak. We get a pretty bleak picture. Um, you know, it says that we're dead in our sins. It says that we're like these spiritual corpses, um, just lacking life. And, and to really understand this image, I brought um, my breakfast. And my breakfast was uh, this, was an apple. Um, now we just have this kind of gross, grimy, um, rotting core left. And this is kind of where we're at in the beginning of Ephesians 2. Um, and so let's let this picture uh, the beginning of Ephesians. I don't think that's going to stay up, but you can see it. <laughs> um, and then, but as we see at the end of Ephesians, at the end of these 10 verses, we'll see a completely different picture. We'll see a transformation. And that can be symbolized by this nice, ripe honey crisp I have. This is where we're getting to at the end of these 10 verses. 
And so what sits in the middle between our rotten core and our fresh honey crisp is this incredible miracle. So let's find out what that miracle is. Uh, so if you want, you can uh, read with me Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. The commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passions and desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So right off the bat, we're starting um, in a pretty intense verse. You know, uh, Paul doesn't hold back any punches as he shares these three verses. And let, let's remind us that this is, this is our past. We're starting with our past. Um, so diving in, it says, you know, once we were dead because of our disobedience and many sins. The thing about a dead person is that they can't do anything to improve their condition. They can't resolve their issue. And this is the same way with spiritual death. You know, sin has sunk the entire human race into spiritual decay. If you remember back in the garden with, uh, with Adam and Eve, you know, God said, if you rebel against me, the consequence will be death. And he wasn't just talking about a physical death, an eventual physical death, but spiritual death, this separation from God. And that is what has happened with the entire world. And so we find ourselves in this issue of, of spiritual death. And so it's not like we can resolve our sin with good works, you know, or, or good spiritual habits like meditating or, you know, exercises or going vegan. Yeah, I'm just kidding. But we can't, we can't resolve our condition because we are dead in sin. You know, you can't, you can't begin to live a life for God until you receive a life from God. So here's where we find ourselves at the beginning of Ephesians. Moving on to the next verses, verses 2, we find uh, quite a strong verse. It says, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. You know, some of us may peel back when we read that. We'd be like, whoa, 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 okay, okay, okay. You know, I, you know, I admit I'm not perfect. I'm, I, you know, I can see the sin in my life. But obeying the devil? Man, isn't that a bit harsh? Isn't that a bit extreme? You know, I, often when I'm, I'm speaking with teens and we get to a passage like this, this is where I lose them. Because they, they can't relate to such a strong claim over their lives. So what is Paul saying here? Well, simply put, Paul is saying, man, we all used to live this way. We followed the desires of our, of our flesh. We followed the nature, a spiritually dead nature. And that kind of way of living is exactly what a spiritual enemy, the devil, would want us to do, to follow a nature that is dead. So that's why Paul uses such strong language. More than that, you know, following that dead nature 
actually puts us at odds against the way God would want us to live. And this, this verse, that understanding actually brings us to a point that can sometimes be lost. And that the reality is there's no middle ground with God. We see in uh, Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, anyone, uh, anyone who isn't with me opposes me. And anyone who isn't working with me is actually working against me. We can't have it both ways. We can't stand in the middle. We can't follow God and follow a sinful nature at the same time. I can't say I'm surrendered to God and yet continue on my own path, my own pursuits. And I think it's really tempting for us to create these middle grounds, almost unconsciously, um, to create them. You may have heard the term, a lukewarm Christian. And I think this is a silly term because in the Bible, I don't see that term, lukewarm Christian, used. You know, we find the term lukewarm in Revelation chapter 3, you know, when God is speaking to the church of Laodicea. Um, what he says there, he says, you know, I wish you were hot or, or cold, but you're like lukewarm water. I will spit you out of my mouth. I, to further understand this idea, you know, I, I, I brought us some drinks. So what I have is um, some nice hot chocolate. You know, we got to maybe throw a few marshmallows in there. Perfect. See, great. Hot chocolate is delicious. You know, it's not coffee. Yuck. Sorry, coffee drinkers out there. I don't know how you guys do that. But we got some delicious hot chocolate, sweet, um, double the amount of powder, just how I like it. And what's perfect about hot chocolate, it's soothing, right? On, on, a, on a cold day or an evening, we'll drink a nice warm drink to soothe ourselves. And so, in its soothing, it serves a good purpose. And, you know, also, like a cold drink... I have some um, iced tea here. Again, super sugary, just how I like it. Um, on a hot day, what's great about a cold drink is that you know, it cools us down. It refreshes us. And so in that refreshing, it serves a purpose. So what happens you know, when, we, when we take a nice hot drink... And, you know, we take a nice, refreshing cold drink, and we just meet in the middle. Yeah, okay. I think you get the idea. Um, you can try this yourself, or you can take my word for it. It's not great. You know, what we find is just this, this kind of blech taste, this blech temperature. And, and the reason is it, it, it serves no purpose. This doesn't soothe me. This doesn't refresh me. It left me feeling bland. <clears throat> and so this is why, you know, we see such strong language in Revelation. I'll, I'll spew you out of my mouth. <clears throat> and so this is why, you know, people say, well, I'm, I'm a lukewarm Christian maybe. Man, there's no such thing. God does not spew a believer out of his mouth. It goes on to continue in Revelation. It says, You say that you're rich. You say that you don't need a thing. 
but in reality you are blind, poor, naked, and miserable. This is not the description of Christians. At the end of this chapter, we see it says that Jesus is at the door. He's knocking. He's speaking, hoping that they'll let him in. Man, there is no middle ground. Jesus is either in this inside, having fellowship with us, or he's on the outside, knocking and waiting for us to let him in. You know, but he can't be halfway in the door and halfway out. You know, for this reason, I, I avoid saying things like, just pray this prayer and then you'll be saved at youth group because I find it dangerous. You know, I'd imagine what if someone, you know, prayed a prayer and, and believed they were saved and they were, they were saved from hell and then they went on in their life totally uninfluenced by the will of God, going their own path. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, I remember I was six or seven, and uh, my cousin, who was about a year older than me, uh, gathered me and gathered one of my sisters together, and, and she began to tell us that we needed to pray so that we could pray to God to forgive us so that we could go to heaven and not hell. And she was totally uh, sincere, and, and so I followed along with them, and I prayed with them, and I believed everything they were saying, but yet I didn't fully understand what I was doing. I didn't understand the reality of what I was saying. And I believe that moment was actually a sincere moment for my cousin. Uh, but for me, you know, it wasn't until I was about 13 and really more 14 that Christ would get a hold of my life. Uh, to summarize this idea, James Hudson Taylor, the founder of Christ, um, Christ Inland Mission, said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Now, this isn't to say that we don't stumble. This isn't to say that there are areas in our life that we need to still surrender to God as Christians. I, I mean, look at the story of Jonah. He was a prophet of God called to do a work, and yet he ran in the opposite direction. Or, or look at King David. You know, he he used his status and power to destroy a life. There are times where we stumble and fall. But the thing is, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't leave us there. The Holy Spirit always works about repentance and surrender in our lives eventually. You know, it's often after we've gone our own way and we've experienced the painful and dire consequences of our own path that afterwards the Holy Spirit softens our heart and we turn back to him in repentance. The Holy Spirit's work in our life is never static. You know, I remember a time back, so the Lord saved me when I was uh, 13. And, um, and shortly, very shortly after I got saved, I then began, uh, I experienced something in my life that shattered my world. And so I didn't know how to reconcile my newfound faith with my newfound pain. I didn't know what to do with them, and I found myself very angry with God. I didn't know what to do with him. And so I really wanted not to believe him anymore. And I was actually lying to myself when I said I didn't believe in him because I couldn't shake his presence from my life despite the difficult circumstances I was facing. And so it actually just made me upset. And so I tried living apart from God 
even though I knew his work in my life. Basically what that looked like is when I went back to school, I continued in the same old behaviors and patterns that I had before I was saved. And what that looked like was I was a pretty terrible student and I was a bully to others at school. You know, I, I would feel good if I, if I made fun of someone and, and I would get the whole class laughing. And I would build my reputation off of this. And it was just awful. And I made students' lives at school miserable because of this. But, but something had changed in me afterwards. I went back to doing this behavior, but it wasn't the same because afterwards I felt awful, this deep inward guilt. And you're probably saying, thinking like, yeah, obviously, you're being mean. But uh, this was something I hadn't experienced before. This was different. It was this deep inward guilt that just weighed on me. And so no longer could I, you know, do the things that I enjoyed which were wrong and evil because this conviction had been put on my heart. And that actually even made me more upset because I was just miserable all around. <laughs> um, but after a year of, of living like this, God finally softened my heart and I surrendered to him. I was listening to a camp speaker and, and his words hit me and I prayed to God. I said, I don't want to live like this. I do want to follow you. So I, I repented and then God put it on my heart to, to go and apologize to every classmate I had ever insulted and bullied and made fun of and ask for their forgiveness and, and try to reconcile. The Holy Spirit's work is not static in our lives. It moves. It changes us. It brings us to repentance. We see in, in verse 3 it concludes, But our, our very nature was subject to God's anger just like everyone else. See, God's love and his grace, these are ideas that we can digest quite easily. But the thought that God has a righteous anger against my own sin, that can be an idea that's hard to swallow. I believe our, our culture wants us to acknowledge Christ's love and forgiveness. It loves it. But without acknowledging our guilt and our trespass before him, we want one without the other. That's why you hear terms like, you know, just do what feels right, God understands. Or only God can judge me. We, we want God's love without his holiness. We want God's forgiveness without his input in our lives. Uh, we, I'm sorry, I say we want, not as a broad statement, but in, in general our culture can give off that idea. Okay, I know I've stayed in, in, in the past, these, these three verses, for a while now. And I've been having to hold myself back from, from getting to the good stuff. But I believe there is an importance to, to really understanding this area, this past. Understanding the, the, the brokenness of our human nature. Because if, if we don't understand the depravity we have without God, then we will not understand the riches of his grace in our lives. If I don't understand what I've been saved from, I'm not going to understand what I've been saved for. These three verses, they represent the past of every believer. Do you recognize this picture? Do you recognize your past? You know, maybe, maybe for some, this is your present. 
and I, my hope for you is that you would seek Jesus, that you would trust that he is the only one who can bring you life. You know, amidst this um, pandemic we're in, for some it's been financially or physically devastating. Uh, their security in, in possessions, in health, in careers have proven to be fragile in this time. Where is our hope placed? Okay, let's jump, let's jump into the good news. How about? <clears throat> Sorry, one second. No, it's right here. Okay, so on to uh, verse 4. Uh, we see it says, but God. Okay, I want to pause it right there, I know. But these words, but God, are, are the greatest transitions in all of literature. You know, I, I just circle that every time I see it in my Bible because what this means is that God is stepping into the circumstance. God is involving himself in our plight, in our problem, in our issue. And this, is a, this is the best news. See, the God we worship, the God we worship this morning is not a distant God, but a God who draws near at the exact time we need him. He draws himself in. But God, this, in, this incredible transition. Uh, let's continue. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life. When he raised Christ from the dead, it is only God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead long along with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. Man, what a turnaround. What good news. This is the miracle that we have in the middle of our, of our, of our circumstances. But God steps in by his grace and brings us life. Man, do you realize that not only are you forgiven by God, look at all the other promises listed in here. You are forgiven by God, but also you've been made alive together in Christ. And you've been raised up with him. And you've been seated in him in the heavenly realms. Like there's so many amazing promises in here. So let's take a minute and unpack them. We were dead, but he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. You know, this describes this unity we have in Jesus. He acts as a representative, kind of like an ambassador. He, he, acts, he represents us um, for us and as us to God. So when he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. When he was raised back, we were raised back. When he was seated in the heavenlies, so were we. This is the symbolism of baptism. He is our representation. We get to enjoy all the benefits of his sacrifice because of our link with him. And it's all because of his grace, Paul says. Not anything that I've done, not because I've prayed earnestly, not because I've, I've cried over my sin, not because I've felt bad or because I've done good deeds, but because of his grace given to those who deserved the opposite. 
See, I, I know when a teen has got it, when a teen understands this, not when they can explain to me the theology of the cross, but when they can say, man, I know where I was before God. I know where my life was headed, but now I see the work he's doing in my life and I know him. When that truth has moved from their head to their heart, In here it says, you know, God raised us from the dead along with Christ. You know, this reminds me of the, the story of Lazarus, right? Jesus' friend Lazarus. Um, we find that, you know, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Okay, the state of his body would have been decayed and rotten and gross. Just this awful picture, right? And this is a picture of our sin, this is a picture of our spiritual condition, rotten, decayed. This is how God sees it, an accurate light of our sin nature. The, the body, the consequence of death. But then in that story, you know, we see Jesus goes there and he says, Lazarus, get up. And we see him remove the consequences of death. He removes the decay, he removes the rot, and he restores the body. This is what has happened here. This is what he's talking about. We've been restored. Our spiritual life has been restored to us, brought back to life. You know, I think um, many of us think of that story, or many people have seen that story, and they say, man, if only I was there. If I was there, I would believe if I saw someone raised from the dead. And I don't think that's true. Because you look right after this event is exactly when the Pharisees plot to kill Jesus. Despite seeing the miracle, despite the crowd of witnesses all seeing Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead four days after, it didn't change their heart. It didn't transform their heart. See, John Piper says, True belief means seeing Jesus as the most precious person in the universe and treasuring him above everything else. Moving forward, we see, you know, not only are we raised back to life with Christ, but we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. You know, Phil's been talking about this idea. He had that Lego structure up, right? And, and Phil shared that this, is, this idea of being seated in the heavenly realms is not an idea about our location, you know, because we're here on earth. We're not up there, okay? But it's about our position, our standing, and since Christ is our representative and he sits at the right hand of the Father, so when God sees him, he sees us there with him already. It's about our position. This is good news. And we have stepped out of darkness and death into life and eternity because God has stepped into our circumstance. This is, this is the present of every believer. This is your circumstances. Man, what a thing that we can celebrate. You know, and finally, I want, I want us to move on to the future. We've, we've tackled our present. We've discussed, or we tackled our past. We've discussed our present. And now, what's in store? What is for our future? Well, let's read verses 7 to 10 here. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. 
God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you, you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can brag about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things that he has prepared for us long ago. Man, so good. This is God's master plan revealed to us. And it's absolutely genius and beautiful. I I don't think any person could have thought of how brilliant this idea is. The idea is that each of us, me and you, are evidence of God's grace and kindness. See, the church is all part of this great exhibit. We will be a part of this great exhibit one day, and one day God will show every living thing in the universe the evidence of his character, the evidence of his grace, the evidence of his mercy. He will show that everyone, he will show to everyone the body of believers that are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, that this is the evidence of who he is. Because of this evidence, no one will be able to refute God's character. No one will be able to say to God, man, you're not loving, you're not kind, you're not gracious. He has proven his evidence to be irrefutable. Man, every Christian, the church, is God's evidence of grace. Man, what an, what an incredible place to come from, from dead in our sin to evidence of God's grace. See, I, I find God's transformational power here to be the most incredible power. I mean, it's, it's brilliant. I mean, sure, yeah, by God's power, he can, you know, out of the breath of his nostrils, he can create a giraffe. Uh, that's awesome. But the, the idea that God can transform a person's nature that is opposed to God, that is walking in its own way, and transform it into a person who is surrendered and a follower of God, without without inhibiting that person's free will and doing it with just love? Man, that's an incredible transformation power. You see, the lofty and theological ideas of God's character, of his grace and kindness, have become a tangible, personal experience. The intangible has become tangible. Each one of you are evidence of God's grace. God's intangible characteristics become tangible in each one of our stories, in the story of the church. See, if anyone asks you about God's grace or his mercy or his love or his kindness in your life, you don't have to point to a Bible verse. You can point to yourself. You can point to your life. You can point to the church, the body of believers redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. You can point to his transformational work. Point to the stories in your life. Point to the stories in the life around you. And show people God's transformation. So be encouraged, friends. God is doing a transformational work in your life. And not only just for your sake, but for the sake of his glory that will be put on display. At the end here, it has this beautiful line, it says that you are God's masterpiece. What an incredible thing. The church is God's masterpiece. How would it look in your faith walk if you truly believed this? What change would it look like in your day-to-day if this idea moved from your head to your heart? 
I mean, how many of us are bogged down by guilt and inadequacy and shame and fear and pressures to perform? And we just completely miss this truth that God has for us. You know, I, for most of my Christian walk, you know, which is only 12 years, um, I have been crushed under the weight of guilt. And I've allowed that guilt to crush me and consume me. See, see the, the thing, as I would I'd mess up or I would sin or I would do the same habit again, I would just allow that to take me over. And I, I would think that my guilt and, and beating myself up and, and these awful negative feelings about myself would actually make me do better in the future. Man, it never worked like that. All that did was actually put a wedge between me and God. And see, the reason is, is because I didn't, I had to learn the difference between guilt and conviction. And you know, Satan is the, the master manipulator. And guilt is one of his, his, his prime weapons. He wants us to feel constantly condemned and crushed under the weight of our inadequacy before God every time we mess up. And once he does this, it helps us, it makes us forget our position in Christ. And so then we become ineffective for God's kingdom. Still simple lies. This is what guilt does. Guilt condemns. But conviction, conviction corrects. Conviction uh, reveals the sin in my life and it brings me back to God in need and dependence and help. Conviction corrects my behavior, draws me back to the cross, draws me back on my knees to God in dependence. Are you experiencing conviction in your life or are you being crushed by guilt? One is from God, the other isn't. You are God's masterpiece. Man, you are created anew in Christ Jesus so that you can do good works that he has planned for you long ago. Notice how we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. So, so good works is, is, the, is not the root of our faith, but is the fruit of it. And God is bringing about that fruit, that good work, by his church, by this body of believers. Man, so good. I want to end here, finish here on just sharing my heart for youth. Not just my heart, but our youth leader's heart and, and our volunteers and, and our parents, everyone who's involved with walking with our teens. Um, you know, a lot of these truths found in Ephesians here is kind of how we shape our youth ministry. Um, we don't have any great strategies, brilliant approaches to youth, but each one of us leaders have a simple hope that we want to see happen in the lives of our teens. And first is that they're grounded in this word. Man, we have to be feeding from this. This is where we find out what God, find out about who God is and how we walk with them and, and how he will use us and how we, you know, the, all the encouragement is found in getting in his word, feeding off of being in it. So, one, we want them to be grounded in the Bible. Our second hope is that they they walk through their faith journey with mentors and leaders. The Christian walk is not a solo journey, but a journey of the church, a a journey of a gathering of people doing life together. You know, and this is why we emphasize multi-generational leadership at youth. We want 
We want teens have to see God working in the lives of an 18-year-old up to an 85-year-old. God's got to see God working in all these stages. And in the midst of that, we, we want to be real about temptation and the pull of desires and the hardship and pain and the confusion and difficulty of life. Man, these things are real. You know, I look at the, the last two years of my life, and these last two years have been some of the most painful and hardest years I've experienced. And what I needed was, was people to walk with. And thank God I had people in my life who walked with me. At points, I was meeting with two mentors a week so they could continue to remind me of to trust in the Lord and to persevere in my trials. Man, I needed that so much. And our teens need that too. Finally, I want, we want to remind our teens that God has a purpose for them that is larger than themselves. That when they step into this journey of faith, when they, when they believe in Jesus, they actually begin a journey with a body of believers, with the church. And God is using his, his church to bring light to the world and that every born-again believer, every born-again teen is a part of that journey. And we want to help them in that journey. So those are our three hopes for youth ministry. Um, and we just, we love being a part of it. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to connect in this time. Uh, so friends, you know, I, I want to I end here. I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be excited. Now, not only has God forgiven you, but he has brought you life. He has raised you up. You are seated with him in the heavenly realms. He has a purpose for you that is larger than yourself. You are evidence of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. And you can join him to be a part of good works that he's prepared for you. Man, what incredible news. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that your word speaks to us today. Lord, help us know that there is no guilt in you, but there is love and purpose, and freedom. Lord, may your, your word speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit encourage us this morning. I pray that you bless our whole church family, everyone who's watching today. God, may you be with them. In your name.